I'm Nicola Kelly, and this is Silenced, a podcast from human rights organisation Article 19. In each episode of this series, we'll hear the stories of journalists and activists around the world whose governments attempt to rein them in and cover up the truth. If you've been watching Russian politics for a while, you'll know Maria Baranova's work. A very vocal and well-known opposition activist for over a decade, Maria has faced huge adversity with frequent threats, interrogation and, on occasion, violent attacks against her carried out by Putin's allies. In 2019, in a surprise move, she joined the state-run television network RT, formerly Russia Today, as editor-in-chief, believing she could more effectively bring about change from the inside. Then, last month, after Russia invaded Ukraine, she quit. Here, she describes what it was like working for the pro-Putin network, her background in activism, and her hopes for a free, independent Russian media. Well, on the 24th of February, I was with one activist at my house. He played the piano on my piano here. And I even filmed him. And now in Instagram, we had a game like, uh, send the last picture from before 24th of February. And you know, it's really like from the old movies about how the Second World War started. <laughs> so somebody's playing the piano, something very nice is happening, and then the war started. What was most unbearable, that they started the war at 4 a.m. in the morning. And in Russian history and Ukrainian history and more post-Soviet countries' history, that's how the um, war with Germany started. So on the 22nd of June at 4 a.m., they started to bomb shell Kiev, Kharkov. And I, it's like literally the same. So it was, uh, we always argued with people who insisted that the war is coming. We would argue with them. You know, only fascists would bomb shell Kiev, only fascists would bomb shell Kharkov. And fascists is a very special word in Russian history, in Ukrainian history, in post-Soviet history. At around 40 million people died during Second World War on the, from Soviet citizens. So it was like, okay, we're Germans now, or what is happening? And of course, uh, I didn't have plans to go to my job. At that moment, it was very obvious that now, okay, I don't have a job anymore. Because I read what my uh, employer wrote on Telegram channel. They were in, in favor. My direct boss even started to tell in chat and to other journalists that he's ready to go to Donbass. It was like something like that. It was like, okay, go to Donbass without me. <laughs> While Russian news continues to underplay the invasion and war in Ukraine, some of the country's best-known journalists are resigning in protest. Maria Baranova has resigned from RT. Mm, well, I had some intimidation from my uh, opposition colleagues, let's say that. They would write something like, we don't believe her, we will never ever forgive her, and some other bullshit. But it's very hard to be concerned about my own security because I have been under the threat for 12 years. And when I joined RT, it was 
the time of relief. So I even get rid of my PTSD, which I acquired from the years in activism and from my criminal case. So yeah, it's not, it's very hard to be always afraid of something. You either go crazy or you somehow know how to calm yourself down. I don't anywhere to go. Also, I have a son and I'm not leaving him here. That's why I have been living in Moscow for the last 12 years. His father wouldn't allow me to leave Russia with my son. So at least I've got here my flat. And you wouldn't live even under the threat of nuclear war. And obviously Moscow will be the goal in the nuclear war. You wouldn't. It's very hard to leave your place. I can't even imagine how to be refugee. So I don't have plans to be a refugee at all. I worked as a lab equipment sales manager in Moscow for different companies. By education, I was a chemist. I graduated from the Moscow State University at around 90% of people with whom I studied left Russia. And the brain drain was really huge from the 90s. And the brain drain never stopped. So every well-educated people from every new generation would leave Russia. Uh, and uh, all post-Soviet republics. That's the problem for all post-Soviet republics, including those three republics which are in the EU. Uh, so at around September 2011, all of my friends left Russia and I, I felt really extremely lonely. And also the problem was that I was mom of four years. I was surrounded by a lot of moms with whom I had zero connection, <laughs> intellectual, mental, philosophical, like let's say ordinary Russian women with uh, ordinary Russian needs, people which didn't share anything with me human rights. They don't even think about it. But again, I felt lonely. And on the 23rd of September 2011, there was a huge party meeting of the United Russia Party, where, as we all thought, Medvedev should have promised to run for the second term. That's what we, people like myself and my friends who already left Russia, hoped that anyway Russia will choose normal European path. Oh yes, we really even have some kind of change of presidents. Now we have third president, then we'll be fourth president. We are, at some moment, we will become a normal Western society. So we had such hopes. And then Putin and Medvedev changed, and Medvedev said that Putin is going to be our next president. Vladimir Putin president of the And that was like first time, like, oh no. <laughs> and his speech, his tone of the speech, the tone of the speech of other members of United Russia Party, some of whom are famous actors. It was so Soviet-like speech. It was so like all these Communist Party gatherings from 80s or 70s. Uh, it, it felt very Soviet-like. It felt like we are going to the past. Ah, and also the, the important thing, I had some money. 
with which I wanted to go to the Western, normal Western world and could afford a small flat anyway. So it was a moment like, that's it. I have some money. I had to do something in activism. I should join Navalny. I should join these other people who say that we should go and protest on the streets. Yeah, it sounded for me very silly at that moment because I never was that person who would go to protest, who would be the face of any protest. Yes, I was always very talkative and I would always argue with officials. I would always protect myself. But I was, <laughs> I think that I shouldn't do anything stupid and unsafe. But that was the moment when I decided, okay, you know, it's unsafe to live in this society where we are going back to the USSR. Uh, so it was like from September to till December when I started to ask different groups of activists, what are they doing? What other people are doing? And uh, after the elections, I went on my first protest. Russia's riot police, famous for cracking heads, were out in force. Tens of thousands packed the streets of Moscow in the biggest anti-government demonstrations Russia has seen for 20 years. And that's the place where I was beaten, not only me, by police, riot police. So that's how I turned out to be in activism. They shouted, Putin is a thief, and Russia without Putin. When you come into Stanford, you meet a lot of people. So you might meet someone your first day and they might become your best friend for all four years. In 2018, I visited Stanford and I came from Moscow to the Bay Area. For the whole of my life, I have been learning the structure of American politics. I watched a lot of movies, I read a lot of books, but I have never visited America. And to be fair, what I saw in real life and what I'm dreamed of was quite different. Uh, and also it was the moment where Western world lived in the huge level of anti-Russia sentiment and anti-Russia hysteria. So at that time it was impossible to have any sane discussion about Russia and Putin. When, for example, I would try to say, yes, Putin is bad, but he wouldn't do that because if he was able to do that, we would be in favor of him. <laughs> and even when you joke something like that, people got angry. And it was academic society, academic sphere. And I realized that it is impossible to have any discussion about Russia you either should agree or just should be silent. And, well, I already have the country and the society with such attitude. I, I remember that at some point I tried to be in some discussion on some party and person angrily replied to my what if and what about. And he replied that, what if you join RT? Your views are like this. It was like, okay, probably it's time for me to join RT if you <laughs> don't allow me to have a normal, proper conversation. Why I decided to join them? First of all, I'm tired of arguments with uh, opposition because the problem of uh, opposition in the authoritarian regime 
is the problem of the absence of the institution of opposition in the authoritarian regime. So in democratic regime, you have the institution of opposition. And if you are 20 years old nonconformist or 25 years old nonconformist, you know that you can join opposition right now, but in five years you are going to be in power and you will have possibility to make some changes. And like in 10 years, you will be opposition again, and that's the swings which you will have all of your life. That's how it happens in the democratic society. So, yes, politics is disgusting everywhere, but politics in the authoritarian regime is the place which non-sane person will ever, ever join. Because sane people with uh, good education and with uh, normal moral standards will try to be as far as possible from the opposition, obviously, because opposition will never, ever win in authoritarian regime. And we have 10% of people like myself who just don't have the option to leave the country, who don't have the option to find a proper job because they already were in the criminal political case. So nobody would hire them in the authoritarian regime because security of any company will always check if you had troubles with authorities on political terms. RT. It was a long, 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 long path in the end of which I decided, okay, if this opposition will never ever win in anything, what if I try to show to the people in government that I'm okay, I can stay near them, I can walk with them, uh, and I support them in some ideas. What if in that way, in that case, I will convince them to choose the different path for Russia. So we have a quite huge professional community of independent journalists in Moscow, who, of course, were all very against my decision. And even if Masha Gerson wrote in The New York at the time, collaborator in English, you can imagine what happened in Russian language first day I joined public RT. So it was like a huge amount of hate and a huge amount of promises to kill me and to punish me for that treason and so on and so forth. So first months I visited more often my psychotherapist than my workplace. Then I started to go to the newsroom I was like this enfant terrible <laughs> who would always try to lecture them about democracy, <laughs> about democratic institutions, <laughs> importance of uh, trusting the victims. What struck me was they didn't have really communities. So yes, they talked to each other, they were friends with each other. Yes, they sometimes spread rumors. They're journalists in the end. Uh, but they mostly would come to the office, to the newsroom, would do their job and to live lonely. That's the little bit different from what I saw in Nova Gazeta, in uh, TV Rain, in Echo Moskvi, in other places of liberal journalism. In 
in another unprecedented step. We will ban in the European Union the Kremlin's media machine. The state-owned Russia Today and Sputnik, as well as their subsidiaries, will no longer be able to spread their lies to justify Putin's war and to sow division in our union. It was obvious <laughs> that it wasn't for me. I understand that uh, that was very idealistic, and I understand that I failed. And I felt even not in February, it was, it was very obvious that around two years ago, it was very clear that, no, I will never, ever convince these people in anything. And I decided that I should quit. In January 2020, I decided that probably it's time to find another job because I'm not going to do anything good here. Uh, I will not have the possibilities to convince them in anything. And what's more important, when you are in a position, they sometimes would listen to you if you have some patriotic, let's call them so, views. But when you join them, you're just dissoluting them. It's like, oh, no, no, it's not the time. It is always not the time. When you say, what if we publish that story? Oh, no, it's not the time. Let's do it another time. It is always some, you, you always should think about Russia and do it next time. And now not to, don't interrupt right now with the government. Don't uh, collude with them right now. It's not the time. Let's do it another time. So, so in, to, in January 2020, I decided that I should probably find something else and choose some other path. But then pandemic came and that was like the two years. We all lose these two years. It was like, oh, okay, now it's not the time. <laughs> so I was never do anything when you're angry and never, if you find yourself in this very leftist, very familiar anti-Western sentiment, think twice. It's like, yeah, Western world is not perfect, but it doesn't mean that you, it's a good idea to join RT. So this is my advice for leftist and anti-imperialists in the Western world. This is what an information war looks like when it hits the streets. Police in Moscow's Lubyanka Square, wrapped in body armor, seizing the phones of citizens, searching for evidence of resistance, telltale social media content about the war in Ukraine that can land people in prison. It's doom scrolling, Russian style. Right now, we are living under the state of war. We have censorship. And I'm not sure if I would agree to talk to you in Russian, for example. I feel free to talk right now because it's English. So in English, you can say whatever you like to. And I'm not sure if this law you even apply for the English language. And I can't imagine how this social and political environment will continue forever. It's a very strange war on lots of levels. Wars uh, are committed by youth, not by people who are 70 years old. Uh, also, it is obvious that Putin decided to form the new society, probably. But if you want to make such experiments, you need 
a lot of hills like Bolsheviks had. Yes, they destroyed totally the previous society, but they had a lot, 85% of the population lived in villages, they were uneducated, they were young. So they educated them and they built a new society with the help of these people. When you're 70, 80 years old and you don't have youth at all, we're a very old society. It can't continue very long. So I actually have some kind of slight hope that in a year it will somehow dissolute. This regime, this regime for the media, this regime for the internet where we read everything through VPN and presidential press secretary advises to use VPN in the open interview. It's not even Kafkaesque. It's Monty Python society right now. We don't have media outlets anymore. But since independent Russian journalists left Russia, they actually continue to work for their media outlets through the VPN. We kind of have normal media outlets. These are people who walk outside Russia, but of course they have some sources. They still have their sources and their sources still talk to them. That's very important. You can read uh, independent information, independent from the state, through VPN. But it's also very hard to describe how Russian people acquire information since I am able to read English. Most of my friends also know English. So you live in this echo chamber where you all have a little bit different worldview compared to the ordinary Russian citizens. There were a lot of discussions that this is a problem of propaganda. Russian people believe propaganda. And that's not true. Because according to a lot of social service, people don't believe anybody. After the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russian society is a very skeptical society. They don't believe anybody at all. And that was also probably Putin's goal, that people shouldn't trust anybody. If people don't trust anybody, they're atomized, they don't connect to each other. And it's quite easy to rule them in a totalitarian regime because otherwise they would ask for democracy. But if people don't trust anybody and don't trust the state and don't believe in state and don't feel that it's their state, because nobody feels that it's their state, in that case you can do a lot of things and you can acquire very huge power as we see now. I think that people who want to acquire information, who have such desire, they're definitely able to acquire such information. Some do care enough to reach beyond state TV, but even then, they're not convinced by what they see. Yes, I have heard that some civilians, even children, have died, but I'm not sure I can believe it because there is fake news. They are making money. And also, Ukrainians are not some nation on the other part of the world. We all have relatives. We all have friends. We have boyfriends who are Ukrainians. And now I hear extremely bizarre stories when 
even my relatives don't believe me, for example, don't believe relatives who are in Ukraine. So it's not the problem with media, but the problem with brains, I don't know, with what. When people from Kharkov, from Kiev, other cities, from Mariupol, from, they don't call from Mariupol. They stopped doing it on the 28th of February, and that's the most terrible part. So we lost connection with them. We all lost connection with people in Mariupol, and this is terrible, horrible, I mean. But people in those cities where there is mobile connection, they call to their relatives in Russia, and their relatives don't believe them. They say, oh, but uh, Russian army will not destroy apartment buildings. They say, you know, they are destroying apartment buildings. Oh, no, this is Ukrainian army doing. So they have such bizarre conversations with their own relatives. I don't understand how can media help in this environment if people don't want to listen to their relatives in their own languages. And by the way, Putin is not destroying Ukrainian-speaking cities. He's destroying Russian-speaking cities. He's destroying and killing those who believed in Russia. A lot of these people had pro-Russia sentiment. So this is the very horrible war on a lot of levels and very unexplainable if we talk in political science terms. Oh, I will do I will do nothing. <laughs> I'm not planning to I had plans to be pregnant before war. So Putin, for example, ruined this plan because well, I don't think that it's a good idea to be pregnant during war now. So I'm trying to decide what to do, how to acquire some amount of money on which I can live. <sighs> I don't have plans. You don't. It's not a good idea to have plans during war. You just leave every day. You get up in the morning. You stop drinking. I stop drinking. You start writing letters. But then I wrote few letters, ten letters to my Western connections, and that was the feeling that they're not happy that I'm writing to them. So when people ask me why I don't leave, well, because I don't even have cards which walk outside Russia. So if I go outside Russia, I will not have cards before I have a dress in the Western world. How can I pay for anything? In that environment, you'd better stay at home and just wait what will happen next. Silenced is hosted by me, Nicola Kelly, and produced by Christopher Hooton. Original music is by Julian Wharton, and sound design is by Rick Morris. Many thanks to Maria Baranova for patiently navigating various VPN connections to speak to me. As ever, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a rating or review the podcast wherever you are listening, five stars ideally. It's a really great way for people to find us. If you'd like to hear more about what Article 19 does, drop us a note on Twitter where we're at Article19.org. Thanks for listening.